1: Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We welcome today Diane Perkins Castro, author of Confessions of a Tomboy Grandma on the Eternal Destiny of the Human Race. Welcome, Diane, to the podcast. Thank you, David. You know, it's just good to visit with other people who are feeling um, this sense that maybe God is a lot better and has a lot gr- greater plans for us than than we were led to believe and your spiritual journey is kind of about that. You came to Christ uh, through Campus Crusade for Christ, and you cover this in your book. But tell us how a little bit how you got started on your Christian journey and then how it led to um, the conclusion that God was about the business of ultimately saving all of us in Christ.
2: Sure. Well, I grew up in the church, but it wasn't until college that I really came to know Jesus through Campus Crusade. And I was very excited about it, not only to have a community on a big college campus, but also to have found a a philosophy that answered all the big questions like, where did we come from? What are we doing here? Where are we going? And I devoured books about apologetics. And I I loved how Christianity seemed to answer those big questions and give a, a framework for life that made a lot of sense. But it seemed that the longer I lived, the less sense life made. And the neat and tidy answers that I had as a college freshman just didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And we we dutifully kept going to church. Uh, my husband and I have six children. We tried to raise our children in the faith, but there were lots of nagging questions about my faith that I didn't have good answers for. And it was hard to uh, share my faith, even with my children, if I didn't have good answers myself. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, for a long time, I lived the Christian life. I was active in the church and in the Christian community, but I had these nagging questions at the back of my mind. And back in the 80s, I heard that my friend, George Saris had some crazy notion about everybody getting saved. And I thought, well, obviously that's wrong. (laughs) And uh, I didn't even think about it again for another 20 years. And meanwhile, the Sarrises moved out of town and we didn't see them as often, but we stayed in touch and remained friends. And we saw each other again about 15 years ago at a wedding. And Mm -hmm. I asked George, I have this vague recollection that you had some idea about everybody getting saved. Is that true? And he said, yes, and I could send you a paper about it. And I said, sure, I'll read it. And so he sent me a paper that he had written in the late 70s for a seminary class, and it was exploring the idea of ultimate restoration. And I read the paper. It didn't convince me, but it did give me permission to explore mm-hmm. the idea without worrying that I was going to become a heretic or would deviate from scripture. Yeah. And so I started exploring the question myself and looking, looking at the Bible and reading other books. George also sent me Jerry Beauchemin's book, Hope Beyond Hell. And I read that and it gave me a lot of scripture to to feel hopeful at least You're that right. maybe this idea was true.
1: Yeah, it's and, interesting. Once you start, once you start allowing yourself to look at the scriptures in a little different way, you you also start finding different scriptures you hadn't considered before or start seeing them in a little different light.
2: Exactly. And that's what was happening to me. And I sort of started from scratch and tried to look at the Bible with new eyes and see things that I hadn't seen before. And over time, I gradually came to the the realization that not only is this idea allowable in scripture, but it's actually the foundational teaching of scripture that God will restore his entire creation. And that gave me great hope. And I could tell you a little bit about how that process happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one um uh, occasion that I remember was reading first Peter and I came to First Peter 4, 6, and it said, The gospel was preached to those who are now dead. And I was using the NIV study bible at the time yeah. and I did I didn't know what that phrase meant. So I looked it up And let me read you what the notes said. The note in the NIV study Bible said of the phrase was preached even to those who are now dead. The word now does not occur in the Greek, but it is necessary to make it clear that the preaching was done not after these people had died, but while they were still alive. There will be no opportunity for people to be saved after death. See Hebrews 9.27. And I thought, wait a minute. You can't just go sticking words into the text to make it say what you think it oh, ought lost, to say. Oh, uh, we
1: froze up a little bit there. You were talking, pick back up with the study notes.
2: Okay, I'm not sure how much you heard, but the, the note in the NIV study Bible explains the phrase, was preached even to those who are now dead. This way, it says, the word now, does not occur in the Greek, but it is necessary to make it clear that the preaching was done not after these people had died, but while they were still alive. There will be no opportunity for people to be saved after death. See Hebrews 9.27. And when I read that, I thought, wait a minute, you can't just go sticking words into the text to make it say what you think it ought to say. Mm -hmm. And I I know enough Greek to be able to identify words and look them up. So I went to the Greek, and I saw that the phrase that's translated, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, in Greek is just two words, nekrois ewangelis to the dead, the gospel was preached, or to the dead, good tidings were proclaimed. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that does sound as if the gospel is being preached to people who have died. Mm-hmm. And then I I thought, well, what about Hebrews 9.27? Does that say that there will be no opportunity for people to be saved after death? So I looked that up and it says, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. So it says that people die and then they get judged, but it says nothing about the nature of that judgment or how long it lasts. And it certainly doesn't say that there's no opportunity to be saved after death. I, I so know I start- when,
1: you know, the, when, when it comes to that, uh, uh you know, after death, there's judgment. I remember when I started thinking about this and I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus said, you know, if you've got to, if you've got somebody that's got something against you, get it worked out with them before you have to appear before the judge, because the judge may throw you uh, the judge may send you to the jailer, and you may be put in jail, and you may have to stay there until you pay the last penny. Mm. And so, the idea of Jesus was: it seemed like what he was saying was, "Yeah, there could be judgment, uh, but it was, it wasn't forever." There, right. So, it's not saying that there's not judgment. Yeah, well, sure, there's judgment. We just don't have to automatically assume that it means eternal conscious torment. Exactly.
2: And once I saw this verse, I started being more alert to this idea that maybe the the notes and sometimes even the translation are are given to support the idea of eternal conscious torment, even if the verse doesn't really say that. And uh, then I started noticing more and more instances of this where the study notes say, in effect, well this verse doesn't really mean what it seems to say because that would contradict eternal damnation, which we know is a fact. And some examples of that. And
1: that this I is saw, by the way for, for those of you who are listening in, this is in chapter five of your book. And it, it's an essay entitled Presuppositions and Interpretations. I think that's a wonderful I think that's a wonderful essay in your book.
2: Yes, and I make note of the fact that we all have presuppositions that mm-hmm. we bring into any discussion, and those are based on all the experiences we've had and the ideas we've been exposed to. And there's some things that we just take for granted. There there are assumptions that we bring into the discussion, and and I was noticing that the NIV Study Bible, as well as many other um, sermons and books, sort of assume that eternal damnation is a fact and interpret the verses with that in mind. And
0: mm-hmm. sometimes
2: even um, translate a verse to to support that. And so um, there's some passages like this in First Timothy, uh, for example, chapter two, verse four, where it says, God, our savior, wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the NIV note says, God desires the salvation of all people. On the other hand, the Bible indicates that God chooses some, not all, people to be saved. And then it goes on to give possible explanations of this verse. But it doesn't even mention the possibility that God maybe not only wishes that all men would be saved, but will actually make it happen. And then the passage goes on to say, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time in verses five and six. And again, Paul indicates that the work Jesus did on the cross was for all men, but the notes don't seem to to indicate that that's even a possibility. Mm -hmm. And later in the same book, Paul says, we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. And the note here says of the phrase Savior of all, obviously this does not mean that God saves every person from eternal punishment, for such universalism would contradict the clear testimony of Scripture. And I thought, well, only if you've already concluded that God right. does not save everyone from eternal damnation, is it obvious that he does not save everyone from eternal punishment. Otherwise, the verse does seem to say that he saves all.
1: One of the and, reasons I, in, my, in my book, I use the NIV as the text because I wanted to use a text that evangelicals would recognize Uh, But I also wanted to use it to show some of these very things, Uh, like, for instance, uh, up until 2011 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the NIV had it that the uh, that the uh, that the rich man had was in hell. But then after 2011, it changed it to Hades. Mm. And that was showing that, you know, over time, the translations, uh, the translations change. And that you can sometimes see some bias between what you're reading in the text and then what the note, what the note in the study in the study Bible will say, and that way you can tell kind of what the inherent bias of the of the translators is, and that's why I really liked your chapter, uh, this chapter five on presuppositions and interpretations, because if once you look at all of that, it's just really clear what's going on.
2: Exactly, and I think we all have these presuppositions. And it's important not just to look at a particular doctrine, but to look at our assumptions that underlie our acceptance of it and really re-examine the basic presuppositions that we bring into it. And another, another example of, in this case, changing the actual translation to fit eternal damnation or to refute universal salvation is Titus 2.11. And in the NIV, the passage reads, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Okay, that doesn't prove anything one way or another. But if you look at the Greek, it, it actually says something closer to the reading in the New American Standard, which is the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. And that's quite a a different thing than just saying grace has appeared, but actually for the purpose of bringing salvation to all men. And That's a very good example.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then there are many others that I note in here, some of which I go into more detail in other chapters of the book. Um, but I saw this pattern and identified twenty some passages where this is happening. That the the notes or sometimes even the translation itself um, are fitted to the basic idea yeah. that eternal damnation is well, true. Well, somebody
1: yeah, and if somebody wanted to really look at how that works specifically with the NIV and the NIV in the NIV Study Bible. I really recommend them picking up your book and checking out that chapter five. Let's move on a little bit. In chapter seven, you deal with uh, reconciliation, and you, do a, you re- do a really good breakdown of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and I was just wondering if you could share a little bit, little bit about your thoughts about that passage with us.
2: Sure. Well, as I've often said, there's no single passage that is a slam dunk. For universal mm-hmm. salvation but this is one of my favorites and it's often titled the supremacy of christ or the preeminence mm-hmm. of christ uh verses 15 through 20 because it covers the whole sweep of history and god's purposes from eternity past to eternity future and i've picked out several phrases that um explain this this um The preeminence of Christ in all of creation. In 15, it says, He's the firstborn over all creation. 16, By Him all things were created. Again, all things were created by Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He has supremacy in all things. All God's fullness dwells in Him. And through Him, God reconciles all things. And in this passage, the word all, pon or ponta in Greek, is used eight times. Mm-hmm. And I will readily acknowledge that the word all in scripture doesn't always mean absolutely all. But
0: mm-hmm. in this
2: passage about the supremacy of Christ, I think all the alls mean absolutely all. And so the key, key verse there is 20 where it says god was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross and so it's it's important to know well what are these all things that god is reconciling and what does it mean mm-hmm. to reconcile all things so I, as I was looking at the all things, it says earlier that he created all things, and there's nothing that was not created by him, except, of course, God himself. And so the the extent of the all things in verse 15 is the same as the extent of all things in verse 20, and it's further defined, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. And then it says, he through him, God will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And this is an all-encompassing phrase that means all, not mm-hmm. all things except the majority of humanity. So I, I believe that all means absolutely all in this passage. And then the meaning of reconcile, I think we can get from the context of the passage and other passages using that term, as well as a dictionary definition. And right here in the context, it gives us some idea of what it means to reconcile. In this verse itself, it says, through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So part of reconciliation is making peace between the two parties, in this case, God Uh and man. And the next verse contains phrases that describe the opposite of reconciliation. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Mm -hmm. So in other words, our sin made us enemies of God, kept us alienated or estranged from him. And then the next verse amplifies the meaning of reconciliation. It says, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So we get the idea that reconciliation means to restore our relationship with God and to make us holy and in friendship with him. And that's it. You know,
1: there's a, that, that word res- restore, is a is a very powerful word too. Reconciliation and, and restoration. And in chapter eight, you move on uh, in your argument to talk about why you believe that God has an ultimate purpose to restore uh, everything. I wonder if we can move from the idea of reconciliation now sure. to the to the idea of restoration, uh, because that's another way that people sometimes talk about this. They don't just talk about universal salvation, they talk about the restoration of all things um, as a way of thinking about what's going on.
2: Yes, and uh, one illustration that I gave in chapter 8 is something that has helped me understand why God has allowed this uh, break in our relationship with Him and what it will mean when he restores it. And I'm not a person who gets visions or anything like that from the Lord, but a long time ago, he gave me sort of a picture, an image of what he was doing in my life. And more recently, I've applied that more broadly. But what I saw was myself inside a deep pit with Mm -hmm. steep sides and impossible to climb out. And I saw the Lord reach in and lift me out of that pit and set me beside it. And then he filled in the pit. So there was no trace of it at all. And then it was what he did that really grabbed my attention on the spot where the pit had been. He built a mountain that was as high as the pit had been deep. And to me, that spoke of the fact that no matter how deep the pit no matter how great the suffering or how awful the trials god is going to redeem and restore those trials that so, so it will be even greater than the the trials had been awful and that picture of restoration by building a mountain in the spot where the pit had been speaks to me of his complete restoration of the the entire creation to a state that will be even better than it would have been if we had never fallen in the first place.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the idea of restoration is so powerful because one of the things that's hard is how do we reconcile all the pain and the suffering and the evil of the world with the idea that God is good, a good and loving, all-powerful, all-knowing. Um, but if, if we can believe that even in the face of this, these deepest wounds that God that God actually can restore that and not just restore not just restore it, but build something glorious um, on top of it. in chapter 12, you deal with how it is that some people though they 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 say, well, uh, they they think no God, some people are going to be eternally separated from God, but God is still all loving. But the way we can reconcile that is that God's ways are higher than our ways. And I thought you did a really good job of um, of working through that. So could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Yeah, whenever someone is struggling with that concept, well, how can a good God send billions of people to eternal torment? Somebody will always bring up that verse, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. And the problem is us, that we just can't understand how great he is, and we can't understand his ways and his purposes. But if you take a closer look at Isaiah 55, where that verse comes from, that's not what the verse is saying at all. In fact, almost the opposite. What we can't understand about God is how great his love is, how great his mercy is. And the the Israelites wanted their enemies to be punished. They didn't want Mm -hmm. their enemies to have any part of God's kingdom and, and God keeps saying that he offers abundant mercy to all. And what the Israelites can't fathom is how deep and inclusive his mercy is. And this is shown in the verses right around verses eight and nine where that quote mm-hmm. comes from as well as the chapters preceding and following chapter 55. And for example, in the verses in fifty four, say, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. And Isaiah talks about this idea many times. Um, redemption is a theme that runs throughout Isaiah. Mm-hmm. For example, where he says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. And again he says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the, of the earth. And then verses twelve and thirteen of isaiah fifty five talk about joy and peace and song. And these are the things that will be for the Lord's renown, not that billions of people suffer eternal punishment.
1: Well, and that's a that's a that's a better gospel to proclaim to go out into the world with, isn't it? The, the Absolutely. Good news Yes, the good news of uh, of of God. One of the things I appreciated about your book too, is in chapter nineteen. You do a really good reflection on the fifth chapter of Romans. and that was reflecting on the fifth chapter of Romans was really transformational um, for me. and I, I think you do a good job of working through that on uh, in, in chapter nineteen of your book. So could you just uh, share with us some of the things that you noted in the fifth chapter of Romans that helped you believe that that God was in the some kind of business of ultimate restoration for all of us?
2: Yes. So this is another of my favorite passages along with Colossians 1. And a a key verse there is 18. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And we see throughout this chapter the parallelisms between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam Mm -hmm. In in whom we all fell into sin, and the last Adam, Jesus, in whom all things are restored. And I try to point out the parallelisms in this chapter, and I have little little charts showing the parallelisms right. between and within the verses. And um, I I had to ask myself, well, we all agree that we all fell in Adam, so Adam's sin however that works, affects all of humanity. So we are all sinful. But how can it be that the work of Jesus on the cross is not at least as powerful as the fall of Adam in sin? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, that can't be. The, the work that Jesus did on the cross will completely undo the fall in Adam and that his work on the cross is more powerful to save than the work of Adam is to condemn. And we, we see this, um, for example, in uh, verse 18 and, and then again in 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. And we all agree that many there means all of us Mm -hmm. were made sinners. And the the parallelism is that those same people will be made righteous by Jesus. And 1 Corinthians also supports that where it says that um, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And even uh, Romans 3.23 that we often quote as part of the Romans road uh-huh. path to salvation, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then even the NIV translates the second part of that verse as all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So there's a parallelism within mm-hmm. that. And if you follow well.
1: Paul's, and if you follow Paul's theological argument all the way through Romans to Romans eleven thirty two, mm-hmm. then then we get that wonderful verse where where, where Paul tells us that all have been uh, consigned to disobedience that God may have mercy upon all. And then yes. Paul breaks out in the next verse into kind of a doxology about how amazing God is. And then the rest of the book of Romans, it really takes on a more practical tone after that about therefore, then how should we how should we live? But I sort of wonder sometimes if Romans had ended right there, Romans eleven thirty two 32 and 33, that, that's the end of the that's the, that's the end of a long theological argument. Mm. And I think what happens is, is that there's lots of ins and outs in that theological argument that get made along the way. And then people just interpret it according to the lens they already bring to it. Right. But if you look at kind of the beginning and the end of the argument, you can see that it starts out, God has consigned all to disobedience. And then you get to the end of the argument, oh, well, God, yes, but it's for the purpose of being able to show mercy upon all. But in the middle of that, you in the fifth chapter of Romans, you really see that really Paul really goes into all those parallelisms there, which which you do a good job of pointing out
2: yeah, and he and he talks about how much more um, Jesus work is um, than the work of of Adam. like he says, um, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And he talks about how grace abounded and the abundance right. of grace, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So what whatever, Happened in Adam, and the fact that we are all sinners, Jesus more than overwhelms that that sin with His abundance of grace.
1: Now, when um, to, to to continue on with this, you go in, in chapter twenty-two of your book. You go a little more about the the question of grace beyond the grave because that that's just something that is a real stopper for some people. They've just been told their whole life, well, you have this one life to get it right and if you don't get it right in this life then that's, you know, then that's it. But you go a little further in, in chapter 22 in in that topic.
2: Yes, that is a big stumbling block for people because they'll say you had your chance if you rejected Christ then you die and you Face your eternity, and um, I I did acknowledge that the Bible never says that you can be saved after death. It never makes that statement. It also never says that you can't be saved after death. And I think we would all agree that not all people uh, come to Christ before they die. So if it's true that God will reconcile all to Himself, then then it must happen for some after their physical death. And so um, I looked at what we do know from Scripture, and you can draw some inferences. And I mentioned earlier 1 Peter 4, 6, Mm -hmm. the gospel was preached to the dead, which would indicate that the good news was being proclaimed to people who had already died. And it wouldn't be Jesus rubbing it in that he had died, but they were excluded from his work. And what would
1: Um, be the point of going to proclaim that?
2: Right, right. So that is one indication. And also what we do know about God and the fact that his mercy endures forever. And we also would all acknowledge that deathbed conversions are possible, that uh, people can come to Christ Just before they die, and he will receive them. And and would it make sense that God would offer his salvation right up until the moment they take their last breath, and then in the next instant, suddenly turn against them in judgment and condemnation? It doesn't really make sense that there's a cutoff point for God's mercy. And just as you and I are not finished products here in this life, nobody is. There's still work that needs to be done in us after our physical death. And I think that God will continue the work that He has done in every human being after their death. And for some, this will mean facing God in judgment. But recalling that His judgment always has a merciful and redemptive pers- purpose means that when they do face Him in judgment, it's not for the purpose of condemning them. To eternal hell but for the purpose of redeeming them and it will be I think very 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 intense and severe but redemptive
1: yeah the, sometimes the uh the, the 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 when somebody says oh oh you believe that all will ultimately be saved I guess that means you don't believe in hell then you know, yes. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's just, it, it, as a matter of fact, I sometimes say, well, the early church fathers that talked about this thought that there could actually be ages upon ages of uh, restorative correction. And mm-hmm. it could be, you know, it. it's not the kind of thing where if you understand it, it's not the kind of thing where you would say, well, I'll just do everything I want. I'll do every terrible thing I want as long as I live. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I'm sure then that God won't God will just you know wink at me and everything will be great. No, Mm -hmm. the idea was you. you, This would be a long and searching process that nobody really gets away with anything here. Exactly. Um, In chapters twenty four to twenty six, you offer your understanding of Christian universalism as kind of a unified field theory for spirituality, and this was really profound for me. Once I, once I, I tell people sometimes. Once I came to the understanding of, of uh, universal restoration or Christian universalism, it was sort of an E equals MC squared moment for me. It's like suddenly everything just everything made sense, everything perfectly balanced out for me. And, and I thought that you really did a good job in those chapters of, of working through that. Cause, so can you share with us your, your understanding of this unified field theory for spirituality?
2: Sure. Well, my husband, Tony, is a physicist. So I I hear about physics type things and don't understand them at all. But this idea of the unified field theory, as best I understand it, is uh, a single theory that explains all the elemental forces in the universe. And I, I came to think of ultimate redemption as sort of a unified field theory of the spiritual universe in that it really helps to explain all those dilemmas that I was struggling with about my faith. Things Mm -hmm. really fell in place once I had a framework of ultimate restoration. And uh, like one thing that people have struggled with for millennia is the relationship between god's sovereignty and man's free will and mm-hmm. that's one of those things that we'll never be able to entirely understand but now i i feel as if i can fully affirm god's sovereignty in fact i'm more convinced of it than ever mm-hmm. but knowing that god is also all good means that I can trust him to use his sovereignty for good. And I believe that we do have a great amount of freedom to make real choices with real consequences. But in the end, as a good father, God will not allow us to uh, make a choice that would irrevocably uh, damn us and create a, um, eternal a destiny of suffering.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the sometimes people say, "Well, um, uh, you know, I don't believe God would ultimately save everyone because that would be denying free will." And and I'll say, you know, it seems like God allows a terrifying amount amount of free will. God allows people to do such horrible things that a lot of people can't believe there is a good God. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me. I wish God wouldn't allow as much free will as God allows because some of the things that happen in this world are just so horrible, you can't even think about them. And how could God allow that? So in other words, God is so committed to giving us freedom of will that God allows us to do absolutely horrible things to, to each other. Um, but then, uh, amazingly, as, as I now come to see it, even as horrible that God, as horrible as these things are, God still draws a line beyond which there cannot be healing. God never lets a soul get past a point that they can't be recovered. Right. Uh, so God does give us incredible amounts, terrifying amounts of of free will. So it's not canceling out free will. But God does allow us to go low and to bottom out and then to have that aha moment where we do come to our senses. And so then it's not a denial of our free will, but we realize that we were somehow under the sway of a powerful delusion. And then once that's mm-hmm. removed, then sort of like the parable of the prodigal son, we we begin to want, we, we come to ourselves and we want to make that, start to want to make that journey back.
2: Yes. Yes. That and all started I, to make sense mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. And, and people often talk about the attributes of God omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. And I, I like to add, as others have suggested, omnibenevolence that He is mm-hmm. all good. And if you know that He's all-powerful and all good, then we can have confidence that He is sovereign and He will accomplish all His will, but it's a good will.
1: Yeah. And if God is light in whom there is no darkness at all, then that speaks to me that in, in eternity, when God conceived of, of bringing a creation that would exist in time and would go through ages, that, that in eternity, God is light. God is pure goodness and light, so that God's ultimate purpose, could there could be no darkness in that. And even the loss or even the possible loss of a single soul that God brings into creation, who's a child, uh, that would be unacceptable because that would be a bit of darkness, yes. and and there's no darkness at all. And so that's how this all worked out for me. It made everything balance It made everything uh, made sense. Now, one of the things you do a good job too is in chapters thirty nine through forty two, you do you deal with the issue of hellfire. And I, I didn't grow up going to church, but the times that I went to church, I got some of that hellfire stuff and and the you know, they kept this idea that God was going to throw people into fire and just the very idea of that was so horrifying that it was hard for me to, it was just revolting. And that kept me away from Christianity for a long time because uh, any God that would throw people into fire and, so that they would and eternally burn and, and reek and shriek that and never relent, you know, that's the most horrible thing that uh, I could ever imagine. And that they're telling me that this, their God is that that's what their God does. And so that kept me away from Christianity for a long time. But then uh, I began to, this is my long story, but I began to understand that the fire of God is just the fire that burns away everything, which is not good. It's a restorative, purifying kind of thing. And I appreciated chapters 39 through 42. You worked through a lot of those issues. I wonder if you could share some about that.
2: Sure. Yeah, this was a tough part to write um, because it was it was hard to understand, particularly verses in Revelation. And I tried to tackle them head on, but first I tried to lay the foundation by trying to understand what fire represents in Scripture and what are the purposes of it. And so I looked first at what we know about fire from Scripture, for example, that it's a a symbol of the presence of God Mm -hmm. and a symbol of judgment, and also it's associated with light and with purification. And so um, I also looked at what we know about the character of God and His purposes and what what purpose would torturing people forever have? Right. And um, I looked at the the different explanations of hellfire that we've seen. One would be the inferno, where people mm-hmm. are are tormented forever. Um, another would be separation from God, and that could be described as hell. Um, others believe. In annihilation, that, that people go out of existence if they don't come to Christ. Or um, what, what I'm suggesting is that perhaps the orthodox view of fire and the presence of God as fire is more accurate, that um, being in the presence of God could be characterized as a very intense And um, your experience of being in the presence of God will depend greatly on your relationship with him. And if you're in right relationship with him, then being in his presence is full of light and joy and warmth and peace and, Mm -hmm. and friendship and relationship. Whereas if you are at enmity with God, it's a terrifying thing. To be in his presence. But as you mentioned, I think that the purpose of the fire is purification and it's redemptive, and that it, it's not just to punish people for what they've done, but it has as its purpose to restore, refine, as Peter talks about, right. and to redeem.
1: I think that's that that really helped me once I began to understand that. Ironically, I think what happened in the history of Christianity, um, I mean, this helped me when when I got a little bit older and I started studying more, and I did get the chance to go to seminary. Uh, what I realized was that the fund I had been exposed to a kind of a fundamentalist Christianity growing up. I grew up in Texas mm-hmm. in the Bible Belt, and. Yep and that kind of hellfire Christianity was just sort of in the was sort of in the water and it was explained to me that I'd been born a sinner and that there was nothing I could do about it and god was going to put me in hell forever because god was holy and because god is infinitely holy god has to punish people forever and, and you know that was kind of the, the message that I that I got and it was presented to me authoritatively mm-hmm. as if it, it was the only thing that the bible said and that people who believe the Bible believe this and that this had always been the message of Christianity. But then uh, I found out that, no, there was a period for about 500 years, four or 500 years, where Christianity had a a much different kind of feel to it, a much more optimistic feel. Early church fathers who believed God was about the restoration of the entire creation and that fire was restorative and all of these things. But what happened was when Christianity went into the Roman imperial church and and, uh, the the theology of Augustine became about original sin and eternal torment, that that really got cemented into Mm -hmm. that tradition. And even though the uh, Protestant Reformation said that it was about the scriptures, not the traditions of men, it still certainly carried on that traditional interpretation Mm -hmm. of eternal torment and original sin. And then uh, what I realized was that all came over the oceans, to America, and and a lot of us just that's just what we got, and we didn't know we were getting, we didn't know we were getting a a, a tradition. But but the the terrible tragic thing that happened was that once Christianity in the Western civilization became e- equated with the power of the state and with the doctrine of eternal torment, then people started to think, you know, if you get your theology wrong, you're going to go to hell forever, and God's going to punish you there forever. And so if you're a sinner, that's bad enough. But if you're teaching people the wrong doctrine, then you're a heretic. Mm-hmm. Well, then the, the, it, this is a hard history for people to face up to, but great amounts of terror and evil and suffering have been perpetrated by Christians upon other Christians and upon other people whom they deem to be heretical. And uh, you, chapter 52 in your book, is on religious cruelty, and I think that a lot of religious cruelty was driven by these ideas of eternal torment, because they felt like so much was on the line, that if there was somebody who had stepped out of line even a little bit, that, well, if God was going to burn them up, if God was going to burn them up, then they might as well burn them up, and it just made Christianity into a very violent religion in Western civilization, and so, Thank you for including that chapter. It's a very hard one to read, but could you t- just tell us a little bit more about your thinking on that and why you included this in your book?
2: Yes, I, I think you're right that sadly, this type of thing is a logical outworking of that doctrine, as you explained. And one theme that goes throughout my book is that our our view of God, is going to have a direct and tremendous impact on how we live, how we behave, Mm -hmm. how we treat other people. And so it's really important to have a correct view of God. And I I, I am quick to say that I've known many lovely people who perhaps belong to a church that teaches eternal damnation. Um, And so it's not always the case that... Mm -hmm people will act out what they say they believe. But um, it is, I believe, a, a direct consequence of this um, very vicious view of God as, as a harsh and cruel deity that results in some of these horrible things that the church has done in the name of Jesus Christ. And um, this, this chapter shows the extremes of that, but I think it's true in our lives, too, that Mm -hmm. it's so important to have a correct view of God in order to live the way we should. And Thayer, the author of this book, Religious Cruelty, um, uh, says, if then we would make mankind what they should be, we must begin with the object of their worship. And in another series in my book, I, I talk about the idea, as Greg Beale puts it, that we become what we worship. And the mm-hmm. idea is that whatever we hold up as the model of what is good and true and what should be, we will tend to become like that. And so the psalmist says that those who worship idols become like them. And uh, in the same way, if we worship a God who's fierce and harsh and punitive, that will tend to be reflected in our behavior, um, mm-hmm. the way we treat other people, uh, the way we raise our children, our discipline may reflect that same view of God. So it's really important that we understand who God really is so that our, our we, we don't become guilty of the kinds of atrocities that have been perpetrated in the name of Christianity. And I think it's these sorts of things, the extremes that I talk about in this chapter, as well as just the downright nastiness that Christians can have toward unbelievers. That's the sort of thing that drives people away from the faith. And we, we really need to understand who God is so that we can accurately represent and reflect him in our own lives. And that will be attractive to people, unlike the outworking of a belief in a harsh and cruel God.
1: I think you're right about that. Uh, One of the things that makes me feel hopeful is that I found out about all of this, I started be- beginning to be able to find out about all of these things uh, years ago, w- when I got to go to go to seminary, but at that time I went to seminary at Texas Christian University at Bright Divinity School, and in the Texas Christian University they had a really nice library, and you'd go into the library, but there was a second or third floor, I think it was second floor maybe, and you had to have a special library card that would al- that would allow you to get into the theological reading room, hmm. and so you know the regular people were so cut off from all of these arguments and all of these ideas that they were just kind of going along with whatever you know they were being told they didn't they just didn't have a lot of access and now we've got this revolution to where all the stuff that was available to me behind the locked door of the theological library that's now all start that's that's available now and Um, you're a good example of someone who's a very thoughtful person who began looking into this and started to take advantage of the resources that were now available, that you can now search online. You can find uh, arguments by different scholars. You can go and find out what was written by people back in the 1800s and the 1900s about these things. And one of the things I appreciated is at the end of your book, you do a good job. You, 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 you really give, uh, uh, I think, I think very, I try to do the same thing at the end of my book, not just give people a list of books, but kind of try to give people a feel of what they're going to be getting into as they look at, as they look at some of these different books. So I guess just from your vantage point now, um, what are, where are some resources? Somebody says, well, this is an interesting conversation. Uh, where would you point them uh, to find out more about this and and maybe say a little bit about what you think each of these different resources brings to the table.
2: Sure. Um, I do have this section, other resources at the back of my book, and I've just released a new printing of my book where I've mm-hmm. added newer books, including yours, Grace Saves All. And um, I talk about some of the ones that were Really foundational for me, including a George Saras's book, Heaven's Doors Wider Than You Ever Believed, which mm-hmm. is based on the paper that he originally gave me. Right. And that that helped me. And another book that he gave me was Jerry Beauchemin's Hope Beyond Hell, The Righteous Purpose of God's Judgment. And a couple classics in this uh, field are The Inescapable Love of God by Tom Talbot. and I had the pleasure of meeting him at a conference that George actually organized a few years ago, and also Robin Perry, who wrote The Evangelical Universalist. And those are some key texts for me. Yeah, The
1: Evangelical Universalist by Robin Perry, but he wrote it under the pen name Gregory MacDonald for reasons yes. at the time he needed to do that. So the, and it's also out, both of those books, The Inescapable Love of God and The Evangelical Universals, are both out in second editions right now, mm-hmm. which, are, which are improved. And um, so that's something to know.
2: Yes. And I also included a couple of books from like the 19th century when Christian universalism was alive and well. And I, I especially liked Thomas Allen's book, Christ Triumphant. Universalism Asserted as the Hope of the Gospel on the Authority of Reason, the Fathers, and Holy Scripture. And there's a new annotated edition edited by Robin Perry that's very helpful. Yeah, that's really good.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, and um, and then I have your book and um, Brad Jerzak, Brian Zond, and um, also the book Four Views on Hell, second edition. And the first edition from 1996 didn't even have universal salvation in the running, but the the new 2016 edition does include ultimate reconciliation as one of the views and defended by Robin Perry. And I also have some books that support the traditional view of hell, because I think it's important to understand that belief and Mm -hmm. to be able to um, refute it and, to, to know exactly what it is and what it's based on, and then another new book is uh, David Bentley Hart, um, that all shall be saved, which is um, by a, a very well recognized scholar.
1: You know, one and, of the things that I've learned, uh, my wife is a is a PhD, hmm. and when she went through a PhD program, what she's when she was doing her dissertation. Her advisor always said, Remember, you're making an argument. If, if you're not making an argument, then you're not doing a dissertation. Your dissertation is an argument. It's not a report about things that have happened. It's an argument about the best way to understand uh, something. And so always remember that you are arguing. And what I learned about that, what I learned then is in the academy, uh, scholars really make strong arguments. Like I would go to panel discussions and I would see PhDs uh, do panel discussions and argue back and forth different points of view. And it was like, a, I mean, they would really rip each other's positions to shreds. Hmm. And then they would go and, you know, and have coffee and talk and visit. That the that from, from their point of view, that their job as a As a scholar is to bring the absolute strongest argument that they have in the most bracing terms that they can put it. That's just what they do. Um, As a matter of fact, um, when my wife went to she went to the uh, divinity school at the University of Chicago, and I I, I happened to be with her when there was an orientation that was being given, and the man who was the dean of students said, "If you're looking for a place where somebody's going to hold your hand and be nice to you," This is not that place. Hmm. This is a place for world-class scholars. And we're we are making arguments at the highest levels here. If you want to go to some place where somebody's going to hold your hand and and tell you, you know, how proud they are of you for, you know, going to on and further in your studies, that's not here. Hmm. So to me, when I think about David Bentley Hart, he's a person that sort of comes out of the, if I can put it this way, the fire of these years of academic uh, back and forth where they are presenting these, where they're presenting their strongest arguments at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. And so when you read David Bentley Hart, it's a little bit bracing because he sounds, he doesn't sound, he's not like a very, he's not, he doesn't come across like a really nice man who is just helping you to understand things. He comes across as somebody who is who is out to to, in the most devastating way that he can, show just how little sense the Western Christian tradition and its eternal torment doctrine actually, mm-hmm. and so it's. I thought you did a good you get a, did a good job of trying to tell people about that. Like, don't be surprised when you get a hold of this book. Mm-hmm. So say say a little bit about that.
2: <laughs> okay. Yes. Well. Uh, Reading his book did make me a little nervous because um, he uses very strong language and pulls no punches when talking about um, how ridiculous the doctrine of eternal damnation really is. So, for example, he says, Brutishly obstinate infidelity to reason, sheer moral hideousness, manifest imbecilities, insufferably ludicrous squalid nonsense and part of me was cringing when I heard that and part of me was cheering because we need people to come out and say folks this is ridiculous to believe that God would burn people in hell forever and ever and not only is this theoretically ridiculous it has a tremendous effect in real life because it drives people away from the gospel and or it gives them great terror about what's going to happen to them or to their loved ones. And it does not draw people into a loving relationship with God. How, how can you love somebody who would do that to someone you love? And mm-hmm. so it has devastating consequences. So this is not something that just stays in the academic circles and people can debate about it, and it just doesn't go beyond that. It affects our everyday mm-hmm. lives and our relationships with people, our relationships with God, the way we treat other people, the way the church presents itself to the world. And it is absolutely imperative that we have a right understanding of who God is, and that's what we present to the world, and and not this view of Him as um, a harsh, punitive monster, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Diane, I, I want to congratulate you on working through all of this, and then even taking the step to uh, publish i I know that when you when you publish your thoughts about this and you put it out there you're gonna get you're you're gonna get some positive feedback you're gonna get some negative feedback but I, to me what your book shows is somebody who has really over a lifetime considered um considered all of these things and it's uh I'll say that your book is a lot for the money there's mm-hmm. a lot there there's you guys Thanks. but it's broken down into into In a way, the book feels kind of devotional to me because it's broken down into so many kind of bite-sized pieces, you know, and so that you could just you just read it. You could read a chapter a day. The chapters aren't very long. Uh, Some of them are a little longer than others, but it's just broken down. And to me, once you if you just would do that, then the overall cumulative effect of the book would really set in. I wish we could go through uh, everything. That was in it, but uh, I just want to uh, recommend everybody pick up uh, a copy of uh, "Tomboy Grandma: Confessions of a Tomboy Grandma on the Eternal Destiny of the Human Race," and that's available. Um, you can get a hard copy version of it. I also, I also downloaded. Uh, I got a Kindle uh, e version of the book, and that's that's available. As well, so Diane, thank you, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I hope everybody picks up um, a copy of your book. Do you have any any last words for us?
2: Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity because I just do have a burning desire to share this with other people, and uh, this gives me another platform to be able to do that. So thank you.
1: Well, good. Well, I hope this is a podcast that you can refer to friends and who might want to know what your thinking is. And uh, I just congratulate you on on what you've done. And I look forward to the next time we visit. Great. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, Or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.